Computer, initialize Holosuite. Next time on Star Trek The Next Generation. Captain, our power systems are failing. A crippling force field sends the crew to a desolate planet. Where they encounter dangerous alien predators. Kill them. But a greater power threatens them both. You are accused of deceit and treachery. On the next exciting episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. Welcome to Beyond Farpoint, a podcast in which we chat about everything Star Trek The Next Generation. We're your co-hosts, Baz Grind and Jeff Owen. Hi Jeff, how are you? I'm pretty good, thanks today, Baz. How are you doing? Yeah, not, not bad at all, actually, yes. It's uh, an interesting episode to talk about this one. I think we had, we had a really good fun last time, I think, didn't we? Talking about the uh, tech failures with with, with Jim and uh, Jem as well, so that was a, that was a quite a fun one to do. So it's just us two again this time, isn't it? Yeah, you've uh, you've got uh, just us two for this week, but uh, yeah, we're looking forward to this one. Yes, but we'll hopefully bring you our years and years of Star Trek fan knowledge to, to to the episode. So in this one, in our seventh episode of Beyond Farpoint, we're turning our focus to the origins of the Ferengi in Star Trek. Ferengi were originally envisioned as the uh, the big bads. To replace the Klingons, so that didn't quite turned out that way. And uh, obviously, they were set up in the pilot episode Encounter at Far Point. I think we did talk briefly about the the hint of the Ferengi in our in our first four episodes. Mm. And there's a mysterious new villain which made their debut in the fourth episode, The Last Outpost. Needless to say, I don't think they quite had the impact the writers had hoped for, did they? No, exactly. I mean, the way they were describing them in um, in Encounter at Farpoint when they were saying, oh, let's hope that uh, they find you as tasty as their last victims and things like that. You think, oh, what are these, what are these new aliens going to be like? And I think they were sort of touting them to be the big bad, which eventually the Borg became. But yeah, the, early on, you get this hint that the Ferengi are this really nasty alien race. And then we finally see them in the last outpost, and they're just nothing like it. Yeah, very, quite disappointing. I think they they went down the comedy route anyway. I think DS9 took that and ran with it as well. So, in this episode, we're going to talk a bit about the Ferengi itself, about the creation of the Ferengi, the kind of the impact they had, and the impact on the Star Trek franchise a bit as well. Mm. And we're going to focus on two episodes here rather than one. We're going, to, we're going to do the last outpost because that is the big Ferengi introduction episode. We're going to go quite in depth with that. But I think actually we thought it'd be good to also follow up with the eighth episode as well, the battle, because essentially they're the two Ferengi episodes which were designed to kickstart the Ferengi as a big bad of Star Trek Next Generation. And obviously it didn't go that way. But uh, before we get into those two episodes then, what are your thoughts on the Ferengi in general, Jeff? I actually really like the Ferengi. I've, I've got to be honest, I think Deep Space Nine handled the Ferengi a lot better because Armin Shimmerman said when he went into the role of Quark in Deep Space Nine that he pretty much wanted to rectify the damage that had been done to the Ferengi over the years. And um, <laughs> the, the Ferengi then became a very, very interesting race uh, and were well used in Deep Space Nine. But to be fair, 
I think even from their second appearance in Next Generation, which we'll talk about later, they already started to show those signs of becoming the race that we knew. They were still quite comedic, but, uh, well, I mean, the Ferengi are quite a comical race all the way through, but... Mm you could see that there was more of a serious side to them. Come the, was it peak performance that next appeared in after that? Yeah, season two. Yeah, uh, so going on from there, obviously, they started building up the reputation. And as I said, by the time of Deep Space Nine, they just they were one of the best races across all of Star Trek, much loved. And, you know, we had a great family relationship there with Quark, Rom and Nog. So, you know, we saw a lot of family aspects of uh, of the Ferengi as well. Absolutely. And while the Ferengi episodes of the next gen are my favourites, I think when it comes across to DS9, you know, the, the, some of my favourite Star Trek episodes are there. You know, the House of Quark, Little Green Men, mm. the Magnificent Ferengi. These are really good, fun episodes. And they are fun. And they are they do play out the humour. And I think they tap into that very well. But you're right. I think DS9 did a really, really good job of rehabilitating the Ferengi into something more of a believable race. And I think, you know, there there's some fantastic work there and some fantastic characters. You know, Quark himself, I am... Um, I had the absolute pleasure of interviewing Armin Shimmerman a few years ago at Destiny oh, wow. Star Trek. And it was such a great experience to hear him talk about the world of Quark. And, you know, he, he really had a lot of passion and a lot of engagement in that role. Mm-hmm. Um, he actually described him as the most human character on the show. And you, when you kind of think about it with Starfleet, with these kind of model, the best of the best people in Starfleet, you know, Quark was the one who was there to kind of form those connections with people to to kind of in, in that bartender role he you know he supported them he was there it was a it was a friendly ear and um but also he was flawed as well and believable and i think probably more like humans are today than i guess what starfleet would become and obviously i guess starfleet are designed to be the best of humanity to come yeah but there there is a certain element of they are we we, we only see the best of the best i think yeah quark brought a very human role to DS9. Yeah, I mean, funnily enough, you're talking there about the human element. That's pretty much one of the things that they talk about straight away when they say about Yankee traders, because I always thought Mm. of um, the Ferengi as being a sort of parody on American capitalism and uh, and that sort of thing as well. But what I quite liked as well is Nog, played by the late Aaron Eisenberg, rest in peace. He was a great Mm. actor. You know, he joined Starfleet because he didn't want to be the kind of person that his dad was. He didn't want to be the kind of person that his uncle was. So he ended up joining Starfleet and became a very, very good Starfleet officer while still keeping his Ferengi traditions in place. Yeah, Nog is such a wonderful character and it's heartbreaking that the actor's gone now. I would love to have seen Nog in Picard, Captain Nog. See where we see where he went really because he was he had such a journey in, in that show uh, it, from the very much the 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 bad influence on Jake Sisko in the very early days, mm. but that's because of his upbringing. And then he kind of went beyond that and he chose Starfleet and became this courageous and empathetic and passionate and intelligent, courageous character. And it, it's such you know such a great journey for the characters. So. Mm. Uh, yeah, and I think, you know, with, with the three main characters, Quark, in a way, kind of 
ends where he begins, but that's probably right for Quag. But particularly Rom and Nog, the journeys they go through as well are, are just incredible. Yeah. And well, that's all the work on DS9. But uh, let's bring it yeah. back really to Next Gen. There, so ne- Next Gen doesn't really have that level of characterization when it comes to the Ferengi. Let's be honest. <laughs> no, not really. So you talked about the Yankee trailer. So yeah, that that was very much the original design of the Ferengi, wasn't it? I, they were they were. I guess it's a bit it's a bit of a it's a bit hard to understand exactly where they were coming from because in one sense they wanted the Ferengi to be the new Klingons. The Klingons were now at peace with the Federation, so they couldn't be the recurring bad guys. So they decided to come up with the Ferengi. What they actually did, I think, in the end was come up with the, they developed the Romulans into that brilliant recurring menace and then the Borg as the uh, occasional really big bad of the show. But the Ferengi were supposed to be, to next gen, mm. what the Klingons were to the original Star Trek. Yeah, they were originally, you could tell they were originally designed that way. As uh, Going back to what I was saying earlier on, the way that um, Data and Picard were describing them in Encounter at Farpoint in the first couple of episodes. So, yeah, when you eventually do see them, they, um, they, they are, can I say, a disappointment? Mm, yeah. But um, they, they weren't... They were very comedic, as I said. They, yeah. And it's hard to see how they would have been the threat that they were billed to be right at the start of the series. And I think once they'd made their first appearance in The Last Outpost and you saw them, what the Ferengi were, who they were, what their personalities and characters were, they then went, right, okay, let's go in that direction instead. So instead of being the big bad of Star Trek The Next Generation, they became more of a a recurring, and I can't even say villain, a recurring alien race. Irritation, I would say, is probably a good word. They they irritate the crew. They turned up and they caused trouble. But Mm, they were never... They were never. It was never the Romulan level of trouble. It was. It was. It was. They hit. I mean, they 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 do take over the ship a couple of times. And I think they they do cause some havoc. We talked about the Ferengi turning up and taking another ship in Rascals in our last episodes, and I I just quite like the Ferengi in that episode to an extent. But it's mm-hmm. um they 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 were a nuisance and irritation that was out there in the galaxy causing headaches for Picard and the crew of the Enterprise. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, they 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 definitely never went anywhere near the level of villainy that they were built at the start. Mm. But um, anyway, shall we start talking about the last outpost, their their first appearance? Absolutely. So yeah, so this is the fourth episode of the next gen. So it immediately followed um, a couple of we'll say dubious episodes, the Naked Now and Code of Honor, which which weren't great. I, I don't think Next Gen got off to a strong start. You know, there's some no. great stuff in Encounter at Farpoint. But of course, as we talked about in our, in our first full episode, there are some issues there too. And then I think Naked Now, which was really a bizarre having a sequel to an original series episode where the crew act out of character when you haven't seen them in character. is just a, a bizarre way to go for your first regular episode. And then the, the Code of Honor, which is... Well, I, I think maybe we'll talk about it in the future, but the the racist overtones and and they're just it's, it's uncomfortable to watch. I think so. It wasn't really off to such a good start. And then the fourth episode came in. So this was written by Herbert Wright, who was very much involved with Gene Wanamaker in creating the Ferengi race. 
based on a story by Richard, and I want to say the name, Kresmian, I think that's how you pronounce his name, I'm not sure exactly, and directed by Richard A. Culler. It aired in the US on the 17th of October 1987. It actually aired over here in the UK in Halloween 1990, because that's how long it took for us to uh, get mm-hmm. the episodes here. So before we get into The Last Outpost, what are your general thoughts on the episode, Jeff? I rewatched it in preparation for this and I know you sent me a message earlier on in the week that said you know what this isn't as bad as I remember <laughs> and I I agree with you on that the first sort of 20 minutes of it there's a lot of tension there's a lot of drama particularly with the Enterprise slowly losing its power in orbit of the planet and they think initially that the Ferengi are behind it uh, they chat to the Ferengi and the Ferengi then say well what are your conditions for surrender and at that point, they realise, oh, hang on a minute, they're in the same position as we are. And it re- reminded me a little bit of the original series episode, Arena, where you've got mm. the the Enterprise and the Gorn in a similar situation above that planet. And they're both sort of captured and and made to battle it out on a planet for the entertainment or for the for the benefit of a powerful life form. And it reminded me very much of the episode Arena, but obviously with a different take at the end. Yeah, definitely. I watched it and I was waiting for the Ferengi on the planet with all the weird arm movements and the and the snarls and the and that is just is cringeworthy. And yeah. What you right, when they actually come face to face with the Ferengi, it's a big disappointment. But that doesn't actually happen for a good I say almost half an hour before they actually turn up. I think it's 25 minutes before the, you see the Ferengi kind of moving around. So you get Damon Tarr on the view screen. But yeah, I was watching and thinking, this is actually quite good. If this had had a decent villain, mm. this could have been a really, really good episode of the next gen. Even for season one, which is a bit dated. And you're right, I think the first season particularly was trying to be in the flavour of the original series. So allusions to Arena are probably kind of... Um, spot on in a way because it, it, it never quite became its own show really until elements of season two and certainly from season three yeah. onwards but uh actually there's a lot of tension here going on and the build-up to the reveal of the Ferengi is actually um really really solidly done yeah so let, let, let's look at the opening so so the the opening pre-tart sequence so you've got the crew intrigued to make contact with the Ferengi you've had them alluded to in the pilot episode as this kind of possibly terrifying race that would eat its victims who was displeased you know there's a there's a, there's a great build-up to the Ferengi I think this episode does a very very good job of building up to the Ferengi as a big bad and then when they come you go oh yeah <laughs> it's not working at all but you know in, at this point you know I, I quite like the, the ship is interesting you know they've got this they're mysterious they're unseen there's a really impressive design there we, we find out they're equal to the Federation in terms of manpower and there's this firefight at the planet, and you know, there's lots of cool, it's a cool action and tension, and, and as you're right, the systems are failing, and you believe in the opening sequence that it's the Ferengi that have disabled the Federation, mm. and it's a very, I think, a very effective opening introduction to the Ferengi. Yeah, exactly, and you say as well about the ship design. Got to say that the 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 design of the Ferengi Marauder 
the way it looks is one of the best designs of ship in Star Trek. It's very, very recognisable. And then you see the Ferret and Guy insignia later on and you think, ah, right, okay, that's where the design of the ship came from because it's very, very mm. similar um, to the to the Ferengi insignia. But, uh, yeah, I mean, that initial bit, you've got the tension going on. Picard obviously not able to get through to engineering because power is slowly dropping. I, I did have a laugh at a funny moment mine when it was picard he sent geordie down to engineering yes and then he sent Riker down to check up on geordie and i did wonder if picard was going to start sending the entire bridge crew down there at one point wharf go check on Riker. tasha go check on wharf unnamed ensign go check on tasha <laughs> but interestingly even in this episode four episodes in you see geordie showing why he became the chief engineer of the starship because his knowledge of that ship is just absolutely textbook yeah i always found it really bizarre with when they create the next gen they forgot the scotty character mm. scotty is is a very iconic big role on the original star trek and obviously you've got the characters in the next gen data is a new spock you've obviously got Riker's attempt at the characterization of Kirk and Picard's new captain. You've got McCoy's placed by Crush. You know, you like for like replacing the characters, and then they forgot Scotty. Mm. And I think they, they have about see, about three different chief engineers that do pop up over the course of season one. But it's very noticeable that the chief engineer or any of the engineer support staff are missing from this episode. Yeah. And this is an episode about the ship. The the systems are failing. They don't know what's happening when they have the conference room scene there's where where's the engineer or where's the deputy chief engineer or the other dietitians or the other the people involved mm. that would actually be there working you, you get several recurring engineering characters yeah. or one-off engineering characters as well on, on the show and none of them are here it's really odd it makes a ship of a thousand people seem very very small in fact i think that you don't see that but it's a but you're absolutely right you do get to see LaForge in his element. He's very enthusiastic. You know, like everything, it's a bit, everything's a bit heightened in the, in the first season. And I think LeVar Burton's performance is a little bit too eager for me at times. But you do get to see him kind of in his element, really. And you, you immediately see, ah, oh, that's why he's chief engineer yeah. from season two onwards. Yeah, I mean, I reckon from that point on, you know that he's bucking for promotion and going, yeah, I want to do mm. engineering. But what you just said, actually, has made me think. You're talking about there being several chief engineers in that first season. I'm trying to remember. I think Argyle was one of them. There was an Asian character. There was the woman. I can't remember the names off the top of my head. But you'd be thinking, if the ship is losing power, and losing power to the point where you're possibly talking about life support failing, hmm. Where are they? They would have brought everyone in. Yes. I don't care if you're on a night shift or if you if you're you've got a couple of days off. You come down here and fix our ship. <laughs> Let's get us back up and running. <laughs> and instead, they've got the helmsman down there working on yeah. it. And yeah, I hadn't thought of that before, but that's interesting now that you mention it. Why have they got the helmsman looking at it when they've got like three chief engineers? Working in, um... Well, I I'm, I'm just looking now at him. So you had Sarah McDougall. She played the chief engineer McDougall in The Naked Now. So that's episode two. So you've already established a chief engineer character. Where yeah. is she in this episode? Then the sixth episode. So you've got a couple after this and where no one has gone before. Might be the next episode, actually. You've got another. You've got Argyle. And then you've got Logan later on mm -hmm. in The Arsenal of Freedom. 
And then you've got Lynch in Skin of Evil as well. So you've got four, four, four Chief Engineer characters. It's bizarre, you know, particularly as you've introduced a Chief Engineer character in, in Sir McDougal, or MacDougal, I think her name is pronounced. Mm. Where are they? It really, really odds. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of money money and time that you spent on 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 this show it it still looks quite impressive for the most part for a show in the 80s a sci-fi show in the 80s mm. having this kind of level of budget i know we'll watch and i'm watching it on netflix where it's got the hd remaster as well so that's going to help but it does look very impressive and then yet not having these characters not showing these recurring characters kind of smacks of budget restraint which which is really really odd maybe you know maybe they spent all their time and all their budget thrown into the uh, ferengi in this episode yeah there's a there's a lot of makeup a lot of effects and the set design on the planet as well is great you can tell it's obviously a studio set but the way they filmed it and the way they've shot it it's very very effective as well but yeah, uh, yeah it, it does make you wonder where those chief engineers are. I, I think the Asian guy I was thinking of was the chief engineer in the Naked Now because he's the one playing with the isolinear chips with Wesley oh, yeah, at one yeah. point. So yeah, but uh... it's very random. But yeah, <laughs> but I think maybe they did spend the money on the Ferengi because I think what I understand, I mean, looking at Memory Alpha about the design of the Ferengi, they actually spent a lot of time and effort really going into the design and the culture of who the Ferengi were. And Wright obviously worked very heavily with Gene Waddenbury to create create this alien race. You know, they, they created them as this kind of twisted reflection of capitalism, which I guess in the 80s was um, very much at, it, at its height as well. So you, they spent a lot of time in design, which, which, which is, I think we're all shame about the Ferengi. They, they spent a lot of effort. They spent more effort on the Ferengi for the next generation they did design the Klingons mm. for the original series and yet the impact is so different. It's interesting to sort of see going back to this, it's, it's the build up to the Ferengi and everything they've built is so good that makes the actual reveal of them so disappointing later on. Yeah, Shimoda, I just looked up that guy's name. Uh, oh yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they reminded me very much of what we see with Gollum and Smeagol later on with Lord of the Rings mm. and they are bloody annoying as well um, yes. because you've got the moments where they're dancing around Riker and Portal because Portal's obviously <laughs> discovered that, that Riker's interested in the works of Sun Tzu and those sort of ancient philosophers and while they're talking you just can't you can't listen to what they're saying because you've got <laughs> the three Ferengi just dancing around them and you know just being very very irritating yeah, and unfortunately, one of them is Armin Shimmerman, so you can see why he decided yes. to work on repairing the damage to the Ferengi later on. Well, yeah, absolutely. Armin Shimmerman is a great ambassador for the Ferengi, yes. and I think he certainly makes up for the character of I think it's Lee Tech in this episode. Yes. The first eighteen minutes are for me really, really solid. I yeah. think you've got the the mysterious nature of the Ferengi. You know, are they responsible for the ship losing power? You've got the kind of mystery of what's going on. You've got the kind of discussions about, what, you know, who the Ferengi are. They refer to them as the Yaki traders. And, you know, they're, they're essentially evil capitalists, which is which is mm. a very interesting idea in itself. And I think, again, that's something that DS9 really takes to the natural point. I was just going to say, because well, obviously the Federation itself is post-scarcity, is post-money, mm. and the Ferengi are the complete opposite to that. Which is a great thing to do, you know, having a villain which is the... Which is the opposite of you mm. is, 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 a, is a great 
simple concept if you are a race of a race or races of people now who don't rely on money there's no starvation there's there's no need for to 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 advance in a way that's going to bring you wealth or power having a race that kind of is consumed by wealth and power is actually a really interesting mm. opposition to what the uh, federation are so i think the concept is great it's just again it's the execution apparently a lot of it was down to the work of the director now i can't find where i saw it but i did see something originally that said that the reason that the ferengi have got all this sort of dancing around and uh and the the, the way they talk the way they move was was the director himself and apparently because of what he did is the reason that that is his only next generation credit and we're talking <laughs> about an, a, a director who did a lot of work on other shows he did the original Battlestar Galactica he did lots right. of other shows as well but he got one credit of the next generation did what he did to the Ferengi and they went yeah we're not going to use him anymore um but i can't remember where i saw it yeah i i read that too that i think the lot of the performance of the ferengi is down to how he he had them act but you see that when we'll go into the battle um soon but in the battle they're exactly the same when they appear on the bridge they've got these weird arm movements and and looks and stuff and it's it's just cringeworthy Mm. i mean luckily they do they do play that down when the ferengi do turn up later on in the next generation they lose those weird mannerisms, but it's it's so off-putting, so irritating, absolutely. Yeah. I guess, though, I actually quite like Damon Tarr. And I thought the, the, the once you've got the whole tension of drama, of what's happening, you know, we're losing power, that desperate t- attempt to escape, and actually they get pulled back to the planet again. So, you know, their desperate attempts to try and escape the trap they're in, very much like Arena, fails quite spectacularly. And then you've got that really kind of quite cool twist, actually, that the voice of Damon Tarr is heard as they open communications with the Ferengi, mm. and he refuses to offer unconditional surrender. And it's like, well, what's happening here? You know, they think all the, at all this point, the Ferengi are essentially having snared the ship and drained its yeah. power and stealing its records. And it's not that too. I think it's only uh, Troy who says, what about the planet? Everyone else is too caught up in the in the obsession, almost obsession of the Ferengi, really, particularly Yarn Wharf, who basically like to shoot them, shoot them, just keep shoot them all the time. Uh, I think that's all that Wharf and Yarn bring to the episode, really, is saying, "Well, we're trapped now. Let's shoot the Ferengi and get out of here." <laughs> so... yeah. I did like at one point Picard uh, pulled the trick of, "Oh, I've lost you for a moment." Where end transmission, you know, does the uh, slice slicing neck movement. And this is right, open hailing frequencies. And yes, blah, blah, blah. And as though he's been talking all this time, and then mm. suddenly they go, oh, we didn't get your whole transmission. I thought that was brilliant. Really well acted from from uh, Patrick Stewart as well. Yeah, I, I think he does solid work this episode. And he plays off Damon Tarr quite well as well. So maybe let's, let's talk about his, his appearance then. So the very first friend you see is Damon Tarr. Extreme close-up on his face as well. Yeah. What what do you what do you think of the well f- first of the of the Ferengi design then? Um, I mean the first time you see it, as I said, it's it's very much extreme close-up. It fills the TV screen, and I was actually looking at it, thinking it's really really well done because you cannot see any makeup join anywhere because mm. you've got the lobes attached to the to the obviously human actor's face underneath, and I was there looking really closely it's really well done because it's uh, it matches the skin 
and everything. But the teeth, I think, are obviously what they were building up to with um, with the fact that they eat their victims, because the Ferengi teeth are very, very nasty and vicious, mm. and they do look very lizard-like. But then you've got the big bum heads, um, or at least the lobes and the large ears, and you do sort of think, well, are, are, are these actually that vicious? And they do look quite intelligent with their big heads. Mm. So, yeah, uh, they look impressive, but it sort of falls apart a little bit when you think more about it. Yeah, I always like the the facial designs of the Ferengi. They, yes. they look very alien. They're, they're humanoid, but being they're quite far removed from nose ridges or forehead ridges or ear ridges you know which is which is a common trope in in star trek really generally so i i, I always really like the makeup of the ferengi and i thought mike gomez actually does a very good performance as the very first ferengi you ever see i, yeah. I think it's a little bit hammy but it's nowhere near the level of the ferengi you see when you get to the planet i i really quite like the interplay between damon tar and picard i think you're right patrick stewart does some really good work on on, on this episode and uh as he's trying to navigate, which is an increasingly dangerous situation with, with the ship. Mm. Yeah, I, I completely agree. That the first time you see them as well, because you don't have any of the silly hand movements and dancing, mm. that first shot you get, they look a lot more threatening. They look a lot more intimidating. And I think at one point they say, oh, they've manipulated the image somehow. And I don't quite understand what they were doing because that's how they look apart from the fact that it's, you know, zoomed in really close on their face. Yeah. But, yeah, that, that first shot you see of them, yes, they do look intimidating. He did look intimidating. Yeah. But then you see them on the planet. <laughs> yeah, which is actually 28 minutes in. So, mm. I mean, I'm going to stand on this hill. I think the the last outpost, for the first 28 minutes, is a fairly good, solid episode. You know, when you add in the whole mystery of the Tacon Empire as well on the planet, when you start looking towards the planet... And you've got this mysterious empire that was so powerful it could actually move stars. It, it all feels very immense and powerful. And there's a really good mystery there. And particularly once you've got that twist of where it's not the Ferengi, it's the planet. And the idea of actually teaming up the Ferengi, who have already been built as this big bad. And then the first time you meet them, both get stuck and you're forced to work together. And I think enemies forced to work together is always an interesting idea in itself. So yeah. there's, some, there's a really, really good, solid work there. I found... Data and the Chinese finger trap subplot really irritating. I found Data very unprofessional, actually, in this episode, and, and obviously he's quite emotional as he is in, in the earlier ones. But uh, mm-hmm. I didn't quite know what what was going on there. Yeah, and I, I I couldn't understand how he couldn't get out of it as well. It's like we're talking about a, an android here with the phenomenal strength that he's got, and he can't get himself out of a, a Chinese finger trap. Although. To be fair, I did like when they said, oh, shall we send some finger traps over to the Ferengi? <laughs> um, which reminded me very much of Scotty sending over Tribbles to the Klingons. Yeah. But, uh, I, and I did like Picard sort of make it so with that sort of glint in his eye, the sort of wicked glint in his eye, as if to say, yeah, I like the sound of that, do it. I thought that was quite funny. But um, I, I will join you on that hill, Baz, because I completely agree with you. The first sort of 28 minutes of that episode is a very, very good Next Generation, very good Star Trek Definitely. episode. I was watching with Jem, and we're like 
season one is dated. I've not watched a season one episode yet. And I've watched a few of these now for the in more recent times of the podcast. I've watched season one a few times before, mm. but I think every season one episode I've watched of the next gen in relation to this podcast, I've gone, that's a good moment there. That's a good moment there. That's quite cool. But this is very dated and that doesn't quite work. And we were sat there watching. We kind of went, after about 15 minutes in, thinking, it's quite a good episode, isn't it? There's some really good tension. It's a really good mystery, really good tension. The build-up is superb. Once you add its whole Tacon Empire subplot as well and what's going on there, you think, yeah, I'm, I'm really intrigued here. And, you know, even when you get to the planet and you've got that, it is absolutely is a studio, but you've got this really hostile environment, which is mm. very atmospheric with a crystalline structure. So, you know, this is, this is solid Star Trek. This is doing what it should have been doing really from the first episode is it's it's um some really really good stuff here and then the Ferengi arrive yeah and it's one of those things as well is because I think everyone's memory is of that sort of last 10-15 minutes and you Mm. sort of think that's the whole episode but then you go and watch the episode in the first 25-30 minutes where they're on the ship where they're talking to the Ferengi over comms where they're talking to each other while they're while they're trying to investigate what's going on with the planet. Yes, it is very, very enthralling. And the last 15 minutes does let it down. But, you know, that first 30 minutes on its own, you could turn that into an episode by itself, I think. Yeah. And I think if the Ferengi have been a good villain, if it had been the Romulans or, I don't know, Cardassians or the Jemadar or, or the, you know, I'm trying to think of really good good, good alien baddies, but if they, if it, if the payoff with the actual Ferengi on the planet had been as good as everything building up to it, I think this would have actually been probably the highlight of season one, Yeah, I think. Instead, when you look at the IMDb ratings, it's one of the lower rated ones, mm-hmm. and I think that rests on the final 15 minutes. So, yeah. Let, 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 let's get let's get into the final act of the last outpost then yeah back when we were talking about encounter at farpoint we started talking about the crew being dicks to each other and there was a moment of that at the point where Riker and the away team are beaming down data is filling him in on information about the planet and Riker's got that sort of very very short stern understood lines back at him and I thought Okay, he's giving you information that you should know, and he's he's being a bit of a dick to data, <laughs> but not as much as Geordie is when Riker finds him on the planet and goes, "Are you conscious?" And Geordie goes, "Do I look conscious?" I think, <laughs> "Wow, you talking to your commanding officer like that?" And he wants his promotion. Yeah, yeah that, exactly. That, uh, it, it that struck me as odd too, definitely. But yeah, we're back to the crew being dicks to each other again. <laughs> Which is weird for for given that Roddenberry didn't want any conflict on the crew. You've mm. got some weird, bizarre moments in in these early episodes when they're just horrible to each other and they're very unprofessional to each other as well. Yeah, and it's like, well, you either want conflict or you don't. But what they've got is so false and actually just doesn't work at all. It's actually it's supposed to be a really professional ship and things like that just like that i think you say it's george, george the way geordie talks to to riker riker talking to data data in the, in the finger trap thing really bugged me because he was like you were you're in a briefing here about this major threat and you're playing with a finger trap it's like and you're, you're an trying to make a child which doesn't doesn't work it's there are little moments that just bring it out from being actually really good characters working together on on, on the situation but uh mm. 
but hey they're not the ferengi crew and <laughs> when they arrive it you know they've got these weird energy whips which they don't i don't think they ever appear again do they i think they're not uh um, I think the only time they're mentioned is on the action figure because you've got right. Quark's collection of the Marauder Mo, is it? Action figures, the toys that he had as a kid. Oh, yes. Um, and I think they had energy whips. But I think that's the only other time they mention energy whips in relation to Ferengi. But to be fair, that is a vicious weapon. Mm. Right. Again, yeah. Again, it speaks to the what they were trying to do with the Ferengi is better than the execution. There were moments like the ship is great, the tension of the episode is great, the whips they're actually pretty yeah, pretty nasty. Mm. And I guess it's the only way to explain how they caught Worf. Yeah. <laughs> because Worf gets caught by the by the Ferengi and, and they they basically get rounded up by the Ferengi. And and then when you see them in action you go, How on earth did this happen? Has what we've done broken our agreement with our captain? We will accuse the humans of preparing to ambush us. Ah. It will be our word against theirs. And who is more trustworthy, Mordak? It looks like gold. It is gold. Armin to be fair, you can see he's trying to do his best with Lee Tech, but he's he's not great. And the others are even worse. I, mean, I don't even remember them. I just remember them being irritating. On DS9, the sexism of the Ferengi mm. is kind of... Sometimes it doesn't work, but sometimes they use it quite effectively in terms of this this very different race. But here it's just cringeworthy. When Tasha Yar shows up and yeah. she's, like, she's a badass, she she stops the Ferengi, and they go, "Oh, as a female, and you forced to work, you you work with them and force them to wear clothing." Mm-hmm. It's all very uh, on on top of the whole weird arm movements and the glares and the snarls and the head tilts. It's just it's so hammy, and yeah, I don't know what the director was think, thinking here, but. Uh, it just does, doesn't work at, at all. And it really, it brings the episode yeah, absolutely yeah. crashing It's down a shame because it's well. like the lizards in Threshold in Voyager. You get that moment, you think, ah, that's such a shame because mm. up till that point, it was a really good episode. And then everyone remembers the lizards, but everyone remembers the, um, the, the comical Ferengi at the end of, at the end of the last outpost. So, um, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I agree. What did you think of the Guardian of the Tacon Empire? The portal. That's one thing I picked up from, actually, in the... It was either the Next Generation Companion or the Star Trek Next Generation magazine collection. It was originally done that he was meant to have been a Rip Van Winkle-type character, so he would have been asleep for thousands and thousands of years, which they sort of do get across, not knowing the changes that have happened in the galaxy over that time. And yeah, I I think he's a very interesting character. He's very confrontational, very aggressive. But the moment that Riker convinces him that he's on the same page as him, you can immediately see he relaxes and goes, oh yeah, tell me more about Sun Tzu. And it looks like then they, they would become good friends. 
But yeah, I do like the character of Portal. It's a shame we didn't see him again. Actually. I completely forgot about Tacon Empire. This is a storyline ripe for a sequel, ripe for exploration. Mm. I think the the impact of the lost Tacon Empire will be a great Star Trek story, a great recurring yeah. Star Trek story. So it's like the Guardians of Forever. There's some stuff out there, some really big, powerful races out there. And I think uh, it would have been interesting to see explored more. I really like the ghostly face of Portal. And that, that was really effective. Mm. Probably better than the physical manifestation. I think Daryl Henry could plays the the Guardian. He looks like something about like the 90s He-Man movie, to be fair, I think, a little bit. <laughs> yeah, think, with, with the bad makeup and the side twirling. There were bits when you think, oh, this reminds me of the 90s He-Man, which I am quite fond of, them, but it hasn't dated well. And it definitely no. reminded me a bit of that. I think the, the, I'd almost been quite happy if it had just been the ghostly face. It maybe would have been more effective, more atmospheric. But uh, you are, I, I do like how it changes and his interactions with Rike, who does a decent job in this episode, to be fair. His um, dismissiveness of data aside. Again, it's brought down by the Ferengi. I think it was um, yeah, Jake Dengel's Mordok, one of the other Ferengi. It's just, I just want him to swat him, shoot him, do something with him because he's so, so irritating. Yeah. You know, the shoulder hunching and the arm twirl. It really, really irritated me. Take the Ferengi away from that. Then there's a really good subplot there with, with the portal and Riker too. Yeah, someone did a, um, a Star Wars Phantom Menace remake where they took out all Jar Jar Binks scenes. I'd like to see a fan edit of The Last Outpost where they take out all of the dancing Ferengi so we can focus a bit more on Portal and Riker's talk at the end. How about if this episode had been the reintroduction of the Romulans and it had been a Romulan bird of prey and then they, they thought the Romans were taking over, they didn't know much about them and then it, at the end it was the Portal. Can you imagine how good an episode this would be? There you go. That's it. There's got to be someone out there who's listening to this and thinking, yeah, we'll do that. Let's edit some Romulans in there instead. Yeah. So. Can, can we ask that, please? Can we have this, the first contact of Romulans in over a century, when they we first meet that bird of prey, which is gorgeous anyway, and mm. then they think Romulans are attacking them? Yeah. Much better mm. episode, but there you go. So any other <clears> kind of closing thoughts on the last outpost before we move on to the battle? Picard swears. Does he? Yeah, that's... That? He swears in French, but he swears. Ah. Um, at the uh, at one point of the episode, he sits down and he goes "merde," which I'm reliably informed uh, is French for "shit." Right. It's so. a situation where you, you you would say that in any language, I think. So, uh, fair enough yeah. to him. Yeah. Although that's another moment that I thought, why didn't that get translated? But, uh, <laughs> but that's that's the um, yeah that's a bit of the geeky fan in me I think wondering why that wasn't translated instead. Yeah. But yeah, that that's my only other thought on that episode. Yeah. So I think I think we agree. Two thirds of the episode is a pretty decent episode, and the Ferengi on the planet is is the worst thing about it. And unfortunately, that's what you remember. Yeah, it's a crushing disappointment for I think what is a superb build up to the Ferengi. Mm. Okay. So let's move on then to the battle then. So the battle is the eighth episode of season one. Again, it was written by Herbert Wright. This time it was a story by Larry Forrester and directed by Rob Bowman, who is a much, much better director. Rob Bowman's done some <laughs> yes. great work over his career. So thank God for that. Maybe that's why there's only a minimal amount of arm twirling, head twitching with the Ferengi. So this episode aired in the US on the 14th of November 1987 in the States and 7th of November 1990 here in the UK. Again, <laughs> aired after another dubious episode, Justice, which is <laughs> another, another one of those weird ones. Mm. What are your thoughts on the battle then, Jeff? The battle is so much better 
at the very first moment, though, where you see the Ferengi ship, you think, I remember at the time thinking, oh, are we about to have more hand twirling and dancing? <laughs> but then you get Damon Bach turn up and he's more like Quark than any of the Ferengi in The Last Outpost. And he's a much more fascinating character. He's the one that turns up right at the end in season seven, isn't he? When, yes. Um, uh, for Bloodlines? Is that yeah, the name it's Bloodlines. It's played by a different actor. It's played by Lean Arenberg. Apparently they couldn't find Frank Corsentino to reprise the role. Uh, even though he played a Ferengi in our episode two. So, yeah, it's season seven Bloodlines, which I think is probably the only other Ferengi-focused episode of the next gen. I think wherever, wherever else they turn up, they, they turn up and cause trouble, but they're not the main focus of the episode. Mm. So it's interesting that Blood, Bloodlines is, is a direct sequel to this. So we'll probably come back to that. But yeah, it's it's, yeah. it's, the, it's the same character. But yeah, as I was saying, he's, he's a much more intriguing Ferengi character. I mean, you do sort of see a bit more of the cartoonish Ferengi from the other two that appear on the bridge mm. alongside him. But his first officer, Kazago, was that the and name? His of... first officer is... I've got it here, I've got it notes. Kazago, played by Douglas Warhead. Kazago is more interesting as well because you've got mm. that scene with Riker talking to Kazago over the intercom towards the end mm. of the episode. And you think, yeah, that that's a much more compelling narrative. You can't imagine Riker talking to Letek or any of the yeah. Ferengi from The Last Outpost in that manner. But they're much more on the same level. Picard and Bok, you can see there's a battle of wills going on there, battle of the mind. And when Picard hears Bok talk about the battle of Maxia, and he, he doesn't realise, he doesn't know it's been called that by the Ferengi, but he then goes, well, okay, well, they were just not answering to Hales. They armed their weapons, so we shot it. Both of those Ferengi characters, the the commander and the second-in-command, are much more interesting, much more intriguing than uh, any of the ones in The Last Outpost. Yeah, I agree. I think we'll start with the beginning of the episode then, and the build-up to the arrival of the ship, which we'll talk about in a moment then. So I, I think it's probably a less exciting opening than... The last outpost. The last outpost does have a lot of momentum with the mystery of, of the failing ship and the mm. Ferengi as a possible villain. I'm really glad it started in the action rather than having the Ferengi turn up and cut to three days later. Mm. So you find out that Ferengi have turned up three days ago wanting to talk. The yeah. crew of the Enterprise are naturally intrigued. They don't know what's going on and what the Ferengi are up to. And then the other thing you've got there is Picard and his headache. And <laughs> I did find Patrick Stewart did his best, but I found Picard's headache in this episode to be as irritating as the headache itself. But <laughs> there was always a reason for that. But it, it was, yeah, I found the performance just a little bit odd in, in, in this one. But uh, yeah. yeah, I, I found the whole thing about headaches not being a thing very strange as well. When mm. Picard said, oh, I've got a headache, and Crush goes, a what? It's like, Really? Nobody just gets a, a stress headache or something? I thought that was very unusual. It's, it's a weird one. It's, it's one of those things where they, they can never quite make up their mind exactly where medicine is in the 24th century. Yeah, you know, you, we'll assume they can cure all, all diseases now, you know, every, even including cancer now, you know. Let's assume we've mm. moved on and we can cure diseases. But there's the difference between curing them and they're not happening in the first place. You know, people will get a headache and they give it the basically and the unfortunate we should give him the hypersolar equivalent of paracetamol boom done 
that must happen yeah. very often you know stress headaches these characters go through extreme amount of stress and trauma they're mm. gonna have stress headaches it's gonna i've had a stress headache before i know what it's like it's not the way the picard acts you know i yeah. sort of kneel back in kind of how emotions got my head all oh, my head like the way patrick stewart played picard in this episode is a little bit weird and uh there was a moment again when i think troy reacts to picard's headache and it's like it's really kind of hammy extreme and you think no dial it down a bit it's not that bad and i think there's a difference between cure and cause and what they're suggesting here is they aren't cause in the first place which is bizarre yes you can cure headache instantaneously as i'm sure you can cure a broken bone or you can cure disease fairly quickly and i can believe all that but what i don't believe is that these diseases or a broken bone or a headache all these things aren't going to happen in the first place yeah, I mean, a headache isn't a germ, it isn't a virus, it isn't mm. something which can be transmitted. You can't wipe out a headache germ. Um, a headache is mm. something that you get. So, yes, you will get a headache. How quickly you can cure it, how quickly you can make that pain go away, that is obviously something that can be done better in the 24th century. And I like the whole thing as well when Crusher says, oh, um, the pain is still there, it's just been concealed. And I thought, well, if the pain isn't, if the pain has been concealed it's not there it's um it, it's yes. you've removed the pain so that yeah that was a bit odd it's a really random subplot for me it doesn't work at all but uh mm. there you go i guess before the gift then so a couple of things i noticed in that kind of open sequence wesley on the bridge i found wesley's role in this episode very odd again they never quite knew what to do with wesley in the opening episodes certainly the first season he's he's not a cadet he's not in Starfleet itself, and yet Picard calls him an ensign in this episode, which is bizarre, but he's on the bridge to boost engineering output. Again, where's the chief engineer? But there you go. But why is essentially a kid who might be a genius on the bridge of the flagship of the Federation boosting engineering output? And why is he the only one to notice the alarm, the proximity alarm going off as well? It, It makes this really top brass professional crew look stupid. There's two things he does, and I think Will Wheaton has even said later on that there's there's a couple of things that Wesley does in the episode which are completely irrational. As you said, he says, oh, you're about to get an intruder alert. How do you know that? And they say, oh, he's he's come up to the bridge to tell them that they're about to have an intruder alert. And then later on, when they're looking at the scans of Picard's brain patterns, and he goes, oh, I glanced at it. And uh, I saw that it was the same pattern as the energy that we were getting. It's like you glanced at it and you're in sick bay with your mother, who's a qualified medical professional, <laughs> a counsellor and presumably other people that would also know about the engineering side of the ship. So, yeah, uh, even Will Wheaton himself has said that he... He comes across. Uh, it, it was the point where Wesley became the wonderkind, mm. and he said he he hates the fact that Wesley always seemed to be the one that fixed things. You've got a crew of professionals who have been who have been doing their job for years, and suddenly he comes in, glances at it, and knows exactly what's going on. He hated that apparently. Exactly, it it, it makes the crew look stupid. Uh, you, yeah. you never you, you never want to make your heroes of your story look stupid unless there's a reason for it and there's no reason here it's just to give wesley something to do really and uh again maybe there's a reason they didn't have a chief engineer so they can give wesley something to do in the uh first season i, I don't know but it, it doesn't it doesn't work for me no i i completely agree and i'm glad they did bring in 
Geordie as a as an engineer for the second season. Yeah. So let's talk about the gift itself then, the arrival of the Ferengi with the gift of the Stargazer then. Mm. So what did you think of the kind of whole twist around what the Ferengi were up to? Certainly, certainly in the first half of the episode. I loved the look of the Stargazer when it first appeared. It was very reminiscent of the Reliant that we'd seen mm. from Star Trek Two and uh, uh, and and the earlier movies. Um, the saucer section, I think, was probably a direct lift yeah. from the Reliant, and it was very much an older-looking starship. I did like that. It sort of added to the timeline of Starfleet ships over the years. Four nacelles, which I thought was weird at the time, I still think is a bit odd now, but... He, Okay, in hindsight, you know they're up to something because why would the Ferengi be given a gift? Yeah. They, they never give a gift. I actually think because they've done a very good job of building up the Ferengi, even though the performance of the Ferengi is terrible for the most part, they've done a very good job of building up who the Ferengi are. So I think even when they present a gift, I think it's... I mean, maybe it's in hindsight now. and Maybe at a first viewing when I was a teenager watching this for the first time, I may have thought differently. But it comes across as suspicious from the word mm. go. Uh, I quite like the, you know, there, there's something more, but you don't know what it is. It's it's better than just showing you and how the crew react, because that's always the most frustrating thing. When you as the audience know what's happening and you're waiting for the crew to catch up, at yeah. least with this, you kind of know, like the last outpost, that something is happening, but you you don't know. And you find out with the crew. And that, that's, that's definitely a, a kind of a... You, you you actually know as an audience you do find out what's happening before the crew in this episode, but not much before. So it's a it's a interesting mystery, not as big as a last outpost mystery, but it's certainly intriguing there to kind of give some momentum to the episode. I think what helped as well was when the two other Frankie that beamed over with him started questioning him, saying a, a gift, you're not taking payment or anything from it. I think at that point, if you hadn't caught on that it was suspicious you were then starting to go, well, okay, yeah, they are Ferengi, they are mm. Yankee traders. Why aren't they asking for some kind of recompense for this? What's their ulterior motive? Yeah, and I think, actually, I think the the, the biggest fault I found with this episode, the crew looks stupid. They look stupid because, of, because mm. Wesley solves everything. They look stupid because they don't do enough to really investigate what's going on. They kind of, they go, oh, really? And then they just take it at face value and... If they'd done a proper in-depth investigation into the Stargazer, they'd done a full interrogation of what's on the ship, they looked at it to make sure it wasn't booby-trapped, make sure there weren't any devices around, the episode's done. Because mm. they find the device that's hidden in Picard's quarters. Yeah. And the crew look, do look a bit stupid as, as a result of this one, which is, which is frustrating because the Ferengi themselves aren't Romulans. You know, if the Romulans were doing this, you can maybe believe, okay, they've outwitted them. The Ferengi outwit the crew of the Enterprise. And it doesn't work for me, but it's, it's still it's still an interesting mystery. And you are, I, I do love the look of the ship. Four nacelles don't work for me, but it's the same as those ships that have one nacelle. They just look weird to me. I, I think may, maybe I'm a traditionalist, but I think I like the two nacelle design of it of any, any Starfleet ship and they've done many interesting designs with two nacelles when you mm. have four it looks clunky when it has one it looks like it's like the kelvin from the, from the movies it just looks like it's miss, missing something but i do like the bridge the bridge looks like it's at the kirk era movie set and and that that's really nice mm. as well it feels it's got the flavor of, of the uh late 20 third century movies as well which which is one well, mid 23rd century movies so mm. i really enjoyed that as well 
I think it is a Kirk era movie set as well because I think yeah. they actually did pull that out of storage for them to be able to use it for the episode. So, yeah, that that would explain that. Yeah, of course. Well, they they released the Voyage Home not long before this movie, and they had two more to go. So yeah, they're very much the movies on the movie side. They're very much still making Kirk era Star Trek movies. So that's nice. I I did think actually. This was Picard's last ship. He had a big step up from the Stargazer to the Galaxy Class Enterprise D as well. What, yeah, what a massive, a yeah, what a massive change in design. Because even when you see the Enterprise C mm. uh, later on, the Enterprise C looks more advanced mm. than the Stargazer does. It looks less advanced than the Excelsior Class as well as yeah. the Enterprise B. So. Obviously, that's later on. But yeah, it's, it's it's almost like, what did Picard have on them to suddenly go from losing a ship in battle that was a bit old and clunky to becoming captain of the flagship of the new Galaxy-class Enterprise D? <laughs> Maybe Picard had something on, on, on the Federation, I don't know, on Starfleet. <laughs> but saying that, you've still got Miranda-class and Soyuz-class starships mm. in, in service in era yeah. of the next generation anyway. So it makes sense that you've still got something like the Stargazer that's been in use for presumably about 80 90 years yeah definitely and the battle of maxia itself so this is supposedly the first encounter with the ferengi as well unless you count enterprise acquisition yeah which they don't actually say oh yes we're the ferengi which is how they got away with it i guess you've got you've got three meetings haven't you with the ferengi you've got the ferengi that turn up on the enterprise in acquisition which is a couple of hundred years before but they never find out who they are they're just a random alien and presumably they don't make enough detailed records so there's no connection uh, obviously it was, a, it was made after so that's why and then you've got the battle of maxia which is the first kind of proper engagement with the ferengi Combat, yeah first contact the ferengi but you see the ship but nothing else but i, I assume that's a very different ship to the marauder class you saw in the last outpost mm. and then you've got the last outpost which is the first face-to-face meeting between the Federation and the Ferengi too. Yeah. But the Ferengi's reputation is already known because mm. they talk yeah. about them going back to it in Encounter of Farpoint. Yeah. I wonder if their reputation has sort of has sort of been changed. They've you know, they've put forward a reputation that's more threatening and more villainish than they actually turned out to be. Maybe Maybe they've paid people to say. I was going to say that. Yeah, they they they've paid some good PR publicity there to make them yeah. sound more dangerous than they are. Yeah, exactly, and that's why the Ferengi are feared until they actually get seen. And then they laughed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, what do you think of Damon Box's plan then? Um, I'm not entirely sure to be honest. It's it was more out of revenge than profit, and. I, I just didn't see where his motivation was. Okay, yeah, the, the, I think the um, the commander of that starship was, did they say it was his brother? His son, because, uh, his because son. that's why it plays into the whole revenge against Picard's supposed son in season seven. That's right, yeah, in, in Bloodlines. But yeah, it, even a Ferengi, you'd think, would be looking for more sort of a profit way of enacting revenge than Bok does. So... Yeah, I'm not entirely sure because you've got this banned piece of technology in the Ferengi Alliance, apparently, this thought, what do they call it, a thought maker? They call, uh, Yeah, a thought maker, yes. A thought maker. Um, so they've got this banned piece of technology 
a Federation starship, surely they would have been better served stripping the Stargazer of the technology and using that for profit than what he does in giving the ship to him to try and make him attack the Enterprise. It's it's very, very strange. Had this been third or fourth Ferengi episode, maybe it might have worked better. Again, it's about trying to do something different with a race you've not really established well enough yet. You know enough of the Ferengi that when he goes, it's a gift, even the other Ferengi go, what do you mean? It's not, why is it a gift? You know, it's not the kind of people we are. So he's a very different Ferengi to the ones we normally see. He's not out for profit or power. He's there to get revenge. And it's a very relatable motivation you know, mm. Picard killed his son so he wants to frame Picard and get revenge against Picard and the Federation I'm, I'm all with that but having it as the second episode with the Ferengi again maybe maybe it was too soon maybe they needed if you want to make the Ferengi the big bad why not have a follow-up to the last outpost when they get into a firefight with the Ferengi and things go things go a bit horribly wrong and they prove themselves to the villains and then the next episode the episode after that then you get a different type of Ferengi who turns up with this kind of gift which is the manipulation itself so yeah. it's um it's maybe maybe it's too soon but I think next gen jumped that they jumped that with the naked now in episode two by doing an episode where the characters are out of sort before you've even established who the characters are so maybe they're trying to run before they can walk in in terms of how they treat the Ferengi in the show. Yeah, I think you're right, actually. Yeah, I agree. Box motivation is probably better if, if they left it till later on. Mm. There's the whole thing as well with the forged personal logs mm. where Riker obviously comes across these logs that say, oh, you know, I've, I've done something terrible. I've, I've fired on a ship without provocation. And Picard's there going, well, obviously, I didn't record that log, but I understand that you've now got a duty to perform. But instead of doing that, Riker gets in contact with the first officer of the Ferengi ship instead. Mm. Um, and I don't know if they mentioned that he's contacted Starfleet. But yeah, he, well, he has. Apparently, it takes a full day to get a communication of Starfleet, which is odd. Mm. But yeah, they, they say it would be a it'd be a full day. So basically, Riker gives himself two days to prove that the, the, the log is fake by saying okay. they'll send a communication to Starfleet. It'll take one day to get there, and one day to get back, which doesn't really play into how the next gen works after after this point. But uh, yeah, and, and then I think while he's got time, he then goes to the first officer, realizing maybe because the first officer questions Bok. Wing Box says it's a gift and maybe plays into that. I, I do like that kind of relationship with, with Riker and the first officer later on as well. Mm. I, I, I do think the log is an interesting plot device. I quite like the manipulation here of actually, well, there's something to prove that Picard is in the wrong and he attacked the Ferengi while they were flying under a flag of truce. You mm. you know it's wrong and it's more about how do they how do they prove it's wrong. So I it's probably done a little bit too obviously. I think there's there's not a lot of subtlety in this episode. <laughs> there's not a lot of subtlety in, in Ferengi episodes, to be fair. I, I kind of think that maybe Bok should have approached Starfleet rather than going straight to the person that it's mm. about, saying, oh, here you go, here's your ship, here's your forged logs. Surely they'd have been better just going to Starfleet and then Picard getting a message from Starfleet saying, we've been contacted by Damon Bok please return to Earth. We'd like to talk to you about this ship we've had and these mm. logs that they've handed over to us. I think that probably would have been a more compelling 
story. Yeah. But I think the whole thing was is they wanted to bring in the idea of the Picard manoeuvre as well. And I'm not talking about the jumper part. <laughs> it's, yeah, the Picard manoeuvre and the kind of whole final act is that's probably the, probably the best part of the episode, really. Mm. There's, some, there's some really good really good stuff there around Picard. I think before you get to that, of course, you get, you get the, the ghostly replay of the Battle of Maxia, don't you? Um, when Picard starts having his hallucinations as his overdramatic headaches kind of on the stargazer force him to relive the, uh, the battle itself. Did you think the flames and the ghostly crew worked or was it very much an 80s cheesy motif? <laughs> um I, I know you said about it being annoying but i quite liked that moment from picard i thought patrick stewart did a great job of acting to himself it was proper one-man showcase because even though you've got the crew on the bridge they weren't there when he was filming that was all added mm. later yeah. on and I thought that was a great scene where he's he's walking around the bridge, giving orders to nobody. And, and even before you see the ghostly crew appear, which are obviously all in his mind. Yeah, I, I thought that was a great job from Patrick Stewart, just basically acting by himself on an empty bridge. I thought that was superb. It was. It was much better than the headaches <laughs> beforehand. Yes. I, I do like how it plays into manipulation that he actually starts to believe the log now suddenly. So you've not only got this log, which is so obviously fake, but you've now mm. got Picard going, I've misremembered this. I did attack the ship unprovoked. Mm. And that, that's a really uh, interesting idea. And of course, then he goes back to the ship and he's back in command. He's very sassy with Crusher. And he says, oh, I thought I was the captain of the ship. And he tries, he dismisses her away. So it's... um. You've then got a compromised captain, which 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 is always an interesting hook to base your episode on, because suddenly he's not in control. You know the Ferengi controlling him. You've seen the device at this point, but you know that Picard is is a danger to himself as as much as the mm. crew as well. The other thing I was going to say as well is uh, you've got that moment earlier on in the observation lounge where. Uh, Picard suddenly talks to a member of the crew from the Stargazer. Mm. And uh, is it Zebo, the name of the character? Zego was um, something along those lines. But he, he, he talks to that person when he's in the observation lounge. And they go, oh, uh, who's that? And he says, oh, he's my tactical officer on the Stargazer. Mm. And then he turns around and goes, oh, I'm really getting caught up in this, aren't I? And I thought that was a great little acting moment as well. Yeah. It's sort of like you can see the realisation and the cogs turning in his mind that, oh, wow, I've got to focus. I've got to try and be careful here because this is really getting out of hand. And of course, Crusher diagnosed him with a thought process disorder, whatever that is. It sounds vaguely <laughs> mental healthy, but it's like they try maybe. But yeah, I, I don't think uh, a thought process disorder is anything specific to uh, write home about. No, exactly. Yeah, it's it's obviously made up medical condition of the week. But like most of the uh, medical guff on this episode, it, it doesn't work. It's made up. It's a bit yeah. They 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 haven't really put the effort into that side of the episode. But I do like the resolution. Yes. Of the episode where you've got the Picard maneuver that takes place mm. first of all, and the fantastic effect that you see of the stargazer in two places at once. And Data actually gets it slightly wrong as well, because he says, oh, it, the, the ship can look to disappear. It's like, no, the ship doesn't disappear. It just appears in two places at the same time. Lock on tractor beam. Ready, phrases. Captain Picard, let's go. 
Vigo, is that you? Commander Riker, sir. Hear me. Look around. The Ferengi are using their thought devices on you. Stand by. Who is this? It's Riker, sir. You're number one. Look for a silver sphere. Destroy it with your phaser. Then you obviously get Picard suddenly realizing what he's doing. And Damon Bock being relieved of command by Kazargo because he isn't following Ferengi laws and traditions. And you think, yeah, he's, he's just basically managed to work this out by the fact that he's given a gift. So he's managed to remove him from command because that's the best way of doing it in Ferengi tradition, Ferengi custom. Yeah. I thought, yeah, that's a great way of doing it because it's, it's still keeping in line with the way they would do things on their uh, in their tradition, in their custom. Yeah. Uh, it's a really good episode for Riker as well. He shows his ability to command, particularly when mm. Picard's compromised and he's facing off against his captain on the Stargazer as well. And I, I really like that kind of interplay with Kazargo as well. You know, Forest Office is working together, though I do find Warhead's performance mostly cringeworthy. I think it's it's not as bad as, they say, the ones in The Last Outpost. And it's, it's good to kind of see him working together. Yeah, he's, yeah. he's a much more compelling Ferengi first officer than any that you've seen before. And I think those two characters, Bok and Kazargo, sort of then gave them a launching point for where the Ferengi would go later on. Okay, you you sort of see them become a bit more comedic in Captain's Holiday, even though that's Max Grodenchik as well, who would yeah. obviously become Rom. But... They're still going to be a comedy character. They're still going to be a comedy villain, comedy race. But they become much more believable after the battle. They do. That's the big selling point of the episode for me. And I think the actual, the other thing for me is that battle with the Stargazer. You mentioned mm. they look like they're reliant. Well, I don't know if you noticed it. There was that kind of purple tinge of space behind the Stargazer coming to view. It kind of reminded me a little bit of the Batara Nebula sequence from Khan as well. <laughs> yeah, and, you're uh, right. I was like, maybe I'm, I'm reading too much. It's because, because we're podcasting about it. You kind of, you, you review every little bit of the episode with a, a kind of a, a more detailed eye. But yeah, I quite like that. And it was, um, and there's a real nice tension in there in that sequence when you've got Picard going up against his own ship. Mm. It, it gives him real stakes to the episode, you know, emotional and physical threat as well to what's happening. The idea that Picard could actually be manipulating, destroying the Enterprise is, is, is a nice hook in itself. Yeah, absolutely. And you can see, obviously, why that device is so illegal. But you'd think something like that would be great in the Ferengi Alliance because put mm. one of those on the ships and you could sell them anything. But Yeah, there you go. I would like to see the Picard manoeuvre using the Dominion War. <laughs> We've run out of ships, let's do a Picard manoeuvre and make it look like we've got more ships than we have. <laughs> yes, yeah, so how many ships have we got? 30. All right, okay, let's make well, it look we, like we we've got 60. 60. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a cool manoeuvre, though. And, yeah, um, and of course, the, the episode finished off nicely with Picard getting the uh, let the past be in the past speech as well. You know, Stuart mm. showing his acting chops there to uh, give the episode a bit of gravitas to end on as well. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Shall, shall we score the episodes then? Yeah, okay. So start with the battle then. What, what would you give the battle out of 10? I'm quite happy to give the battle a quite a high score. Uh, I think it's probably a 7 out of 10 for that one. I would give the battle good, yeah, 7 out of 10 as well. I, I think there's enough in there to have some real stakes drama, but I think there's some bad activity from Stuart that actually lets it down as well. 
Yeah, the last outpost, I think, is a bit harder to score because, as we've said, the first part of it is fantastic and it just gets let down by the last 15 minutes. I'd want to give the first 30 minutes of that episode an 8 out of 10 and the last 15... The last fifteen, probably a four or five out of ten. <laughs> yeah, it, it well, does. Well, shall go for six? If we go, yeah, I think four, a, five, a five and an eight. I think it's probably the, the as that's how much it changes. So mm. let's give it a six and a half out of ten to be kind of somewhere in the middle. Yeah, so that that makes sense then because you're going from a six and a half up to a seven or an eight yeah. for the battle. To a seven, and yeah. I, and I think if we carried on, we'd then start giving peak performance, Captain's Holiday. Okay, maybe not Captain's Holiday, but. Um, more higher scores over time and by the time of deep space nine and episodes like little green men we'd be talking about nines oh, and tens amazing yeah yeah in my so opinion. yeah <laughs> uh, yeah and actually getting the eight to the nines out of ten when you get to ds9 though there, there were some great ferengi episodes out there if people haven't re- watched the ferengi episode of ds9 i definitely recommend you give them a go little, little green men is, is is comic genius magnificent ferengi is, is fantastic. The Nagus is quite good. The Nagus himself, and I think mm. even his first episode is, uh, is, is, is is quite good as well. So there's definitely good stuff there. And the House of Quark, which is Kling, Klingon and, Qu- and Ferengi cultures clashing brilliantly. It's a it's a great one too. It, sh- it shouldn't work, but it absolutely does. It, <laughs> it does, yeah. So I, I guess in the next generation, then I, I think outside of Bloodlines in season seven, which is a direct sequel to the battle, I don't think the Ferengi would ever really be the main focus again. It's interesting having been episode four and eight, you would expect them to turn up again two or three more times in the first season. And it's very noticeable that they drop off completely and don't turn up again until late season two with peak performance. Mm. I think they probably wanted to come back at the Ferengi, give them another go and try and work at them because they'd done two episodes in quick succession. The battle presumably was getting written and filmed before the last outpost had even aired. So they wanted to, you know, take a break and then come back and go, right, let's give the Ferengi a decent crack of the whip, so to speak. Yeah, I'd imagine the, the reaction to Last Outpost and Battle is probably what, what squashed more regular appearances, certainly. And then they're in, in three of season three, The Price, Captain's Holiday and Menage Tro- Tro- Troy, which mm. are all quite comedic episodes themselves. So um, I guess that probably plays to the Ferengi strengths a bit more. Mm. Season four, they're in Future Imperfect as a hologram only, so they're not really appearing in there. And then apparently they were in Unification Part Two. I don't remember. They might, they must turn up at some. I think they're they're like pirates, smugglers in that. Um, I think if I remember, he owns the starship graveyard, sort of the the, the, oh, the, yeah. the starship junkyard sort of thing. But um, I'm, I don't know. I could be wrong yeah. on that one. Not, no, not a he's a big memoir part. No, sorry, it's another race, and he's like this sort of mafia-type businessman in it yeah. who knows the location of Spock, I think. Um, that makes sense, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and then we have The Perfect Mate as well, from Season 5, not a big part of that. Rascals, Chain of Command Part 1, and Suspicions we obviously covered Rascals in our last episode, and I, I quite like them in there. They... There should have been a lot more of them on the ship, but I quite like the quite like the uh, the the daemon on that episode as well. Mm. And then season seven, false nature, firstborn, and then of course bloodlines. The first two again, they're 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 in there minimally, and then the bloodlines is the sequel. So they they do turn up, they do use them several times, but I never I think to the level they use them in season one. 
Yeah, and and I think Cork shows up then in one of the last episodes of Next Generation as well. I think he's I think he's the one in Firstborn. I think actually, so that that makes sense. Yeah. Cool. Any other closing thoughts on the Ferengi before we, we finish the episode? I think we're going to see them again in Lower Decks in season two. Some of the trailers that they've dropped. Uh, we're recording this before the second season has come out. Yeah. But one of the trailers you can see a. Uh, a, a vehicle that's being driven by Ferengi, so I think they're going to have a bigger part in second season. The the character that we saw in Envoys was a great Ferengi character, incidentally, mm. because it was played originally like the Ferengi that you see in The Last Outpost, yes. but then you see Mariner talking to him right at the end, and you think no, actually, this, this is a very clever Ferengi. He was putting that on for Boimler, for Boimler's purposes. Um, yeah, so a very, a very well-written Ferengi, that one. Yeah, yeah. so there, there's some good stuff out there, but it's, um, mm. I think I think the biggest thing is they, they were a disappointment. They weren't certainly the big bad of the next generation, but when they use them for more comedic purposes or as more kind of scheming pirate capitalist kind of recurring presences rather than the main presence, they, you know, they did work sometimes. So I, I've always got time for a Ferengi. Yeah, if if I know the Ferengi are in the episode, I look forward to it. So I, as you can imagine, I'm looking forward to seeing them in uh, Lower Decks. Absolutely, yeah. Okay, and that comes to the end of our episode. Uh, thank you for joining us for another episode of Beyond Farpoint. I'm very excited to get stuck into our next episode as we're tackling our first Star Trek: The Next Generation movie, which is which is which is great. So uh, yeah, we we ran a short poll on Twitter. And first contact was a clear winner. There was a, no love for Insurrection when we did our poll. No, no one picked Insurrection, but we, we'll cover all the movies eventually, won't we? Yeah, absolutely. I've just recently gone through and rewatched Nemesis, um, and I'm actually looking forward to covering that one again. Uh, well, covering yeah. that one because I think that movie has improved following Star Trek: Picard. I'm sure it has. I think I watched it just before Picard, so I'll be uh, interested to see it with new hindsight as well. Um, but of course, first contact—it's the 25th anniversary yes. of Star Trek: First Contact next month, which is uh, I feel old. I remember seeing that at the cinema. Yeah, I saw it at cinema three times. I remember that one it was the first film I ever saw <laughs> three times. So, uh, um, so I'm looking forward to delving into was what my fa- not my favorite Star Trek movies, my favorite movies of all time. So I'm really looking mm. forward to uh, chatting about that with you next month. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Any excuse yeah, it, for me to go and rewatch it as well, I'll be happy. Absolutely, to do that. yeah, yeah. Everyone, we get 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 on and we watch Star Trek First Contact now, and you'll be with us when we talk about it next month. Mm-hmm. In the meantime, where can we find you online, Jeff? And if they want to talk more Star Trek Next Generation with you, yeah, well, you can talk about Star Trek the Next Generation or any Star Trek or Formula One or retro gaming. I can be found <laughs> at ncc underscore one seven Formula One on Twitter. And you can find me on Twitter at Baz Greenland and other podcasts too over at We Made This Network as well. And you can also check out our Twitter, Instagram and Facebook pages by searching Beyond Farpoint and give us a rating at Apple Podcasts or all other podcast providers too. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Until then, thanks for listening. Thank you. Bye-bye. Let's see what's out there. Engage. This show is brought to you by Hollow Sweet Media. Computer, list other available Hollow Sweet Media programs.
Loading Holosuite Preview Program 4, Blast Shield, a Star Trek Lower Decks podcast. I think we all thought Ransom was going to go into that fight scene, thinking that it was game over before it even started and he was going to lose. But I think the moment he rips his uniform off, (laughs) which is hard anyway to rip a shirt, but to rip an actual like jacket like that, Mm. pretty impressive. And then he had like about, I don't know, I think it was like 62 abs. He just looked ripped and then he was just like you know a little bit of this yeah a little bit of that i was just gonna say it was the way that he also narrated it it was just perfect it was great ransom definitely went to the school of kirk foo ransom foo maybe we should be calling it loading holosuite preview program for random trek review a star trek review podcast yeah, the one you mentioned with Dr. Crusher is hilarious because it gets down to her and Captain Picard. And so it's like they have this giant galaxy class ship and there's just the two of them and he acts like it's a normal thing. And it's just absolutely ridiculous, right? Two people on that giant starship. And there's even the point where the, where she says, computer, how many personnel would it take to run this ship? And they're like 832 or something. And Picard's like, oh, yeah, that is kind of weird, I guess. <laughs> I thought we were just doing it, the two of us, you know, like that was pretty funny. Computer, deactivate Holosuite.